Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. He said, if you join my corps, you'll build a bridge on Monday, you'll defend the bridge from enemy attack on Tuesday, and on Wednesday you'll blow it up. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so you don't miss out on any of the episodes. Paul joined the Royal Engineers in 1977, aged 16, as an apprentice. We hear of his experience of joining the army at such a young age and being away from home for the first time. After initial training, his first posting was to Osnabrück in 1979. Shortly after his arrival, Paul is appointed to the challenging role of driver to the squadron sergeant major. With participation in exercises such as Crusader 80 and Active Edge, Paul describes in detail the role of the Royal Engineers in Cold War Germany, including mine laying, bridge demolition and fixed defence construction. Paul's story is full of great anecdotes and tales of the reality of life in the British Army of the Rhine. Don't miss our next episode where Paul joins the Army Air Corps and becomes an air crewman observer on gazelle helicopters along the inner German border. Now, Cold War history is disappearing, but a simple monthly donation will help keep this podcast on the air. You'll get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. This is Mary O'Grady of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Anyone who's interested in Cold War history should definitely subscribe and support Cold War Conversations. Thank you. Just go to coldwarconversations.com donate. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us as well as sharing us on social media. It really helps us get new guests on the show. I'm delighted to welcome Paul to our Cold War conversation. Well, as a child, we used to go to Bournemouth at least once a year. I think we had some family or something in Bournemouth. And so um, and my mum and my dad used to take me to things like castles and fortifications uh, which I'll probably come back to later. But we also used to go to Bovington Tank Museum at least once a summer. Uh, and that's in the, the time when we had quite a lot of soldiers. So there was, you know, you always follow a truck full of soldiers would be waving. And, and I was quite influenced by open days and firing machine guns and using the assault course. And so I think if, you were, if you'd asked me if I was eight or nine what I was going to be when I grew up, I was gonna, I'd say I was going to be a soldier. In, and in my head, that would probably mean being a tanky. I think so I, I had my visions of being a tank soldier um we lost my dad sadly when I was 12 and I was brought up by my mum and my my grandmother we'd already we already lived with my grandmother so I kept very quiet in school careers uh interviews because I knew what I wanted to do and I went to the army careers information office when I was about 15 
um, and announced to my mum when I was about 15 and a half that I felt my future lay in the army. So she was a little bit surprised because it wasn't a, a huge military tradition. You know, there'd been lots of um, hostilities only service by my dad and uncles, but there were no really no real professional soldiers in, in perhaps one in, in my family. So um, when I announced to my mum that I was wanted to join the army, you know, obviously as a junior soldier, um, she uh, she placed some conditions on me signing up and they were to finish my O-levels, which was not my plan for the summer of 1977. I can assure you I was planning on getting out of there as quickly as I could to do a trade rather than be a combat soldier, which rather stymied my plans of being a tank gunner. Uh, and her third piece of her third condition was never volunteer for anything. So um, reflecting on that, getting that maths O level was one of the best piece of advice she ever made me do. And that getting my O levels was, was, you know, a huge benefit to me. And as was doing a trade, um, I must admit my, my sights were set on vehicle mechanic in the Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers. But practicality took over because the September intake was full. Um, and I desperately wanted to go in September of 77 when I was 16 and a bit. Uh, and which is when my recruiter from my Army Cruise Information Office stepped in, who happened to be a staff sergeant in the Royal Engineers. And he said, uh, I noticed from your original interview that you're quite interested in military stuff, you know, and weapons. He said, if you join my corps, you'll build a bridge on Monday. You'll defend the bridge from enemy attack on Tuesday. And on Wednesday, you'll blow it up. That was good enough for me. So I ended up signing up for the Royal Engineers. September 1977, I turned up at the Army Apprentices College, Chepstow, um, where I was going to study being a fitter Royal Engineers. Um, and I spent two years there. Essentially, the, the, the focus was trade training, with a little bit of military training on a Saturday morning, lots of sport, lots of clubs. So very much, very much a college environment. In fact, you were cat badged to the college until your last term, which was called senior group, when you were issued with your predominantly Royal Engineers cap badge and stable belt. We did have um, some Royal Corps Transport and REOC uh, members as well. So, um, and I also got my driving license, which was astounding really, because I wasn't actually 17 when I did my, when I did my driving test. Three, three, uh, three apprentices in a British school of motoring car let loose around Chepstow. I think my third try, I passed my driving test. And we also got our tracks license on a very small bulldozer driving around a series of cones and into a small garage. So we, we, we left Chepstow. We went to, um, to Farnborough, to Gibraltar Barracks, where we did our combat engineer training. Uh, and then I found myself being posted to Osnabrück. So that, that's how I basically found myself into the, into the adult army. It seems a very young age to be sort of in that environment. I know you were in a college and a, and a learning environment there. And to be away from home, was this your first time away from home as well? It was, yeah. I hadn't been a Boy Scout or an Army cadet. Um, so, yeah, it was a bit of a shock, I must admit. It was a bit of a shock to the system. But um, uh, we, we were quite well looked after. I remember being taught to iron on like day one. You know, went to the stores, got our kit, came back. And the, the block corporal, who was an apprentice lance corporal, so he was like a slightly higher group, um, taught us all to iron. So um, I guess, you know, it's 1977, but there was still quite a lot of pastoral care. You know, company commanders would write to parents and um, give my mum her due. I was very homesick. Uh, and she, despite what she must have been feeling, must have felt like, and talking to her later, 
uh, it was quite hard for her. She encouraged me to stick it out, to stay a bit longer um, and to see how it went. And thank goodness she did, because I didn't enjoy all of it, I'll be honest with you. But when I got into the adult army, I very quickly felt like a, a round peg in a round hole. And, and it was something for me. So, I mean, basic training is is always tough. Um, the focus was always on trade training in, in that apprentice college. That was the that was, print, you know, trade training was king. But slowly but surely, they introduced more, more and more military training, strong on drill, um, strong on running. Cause that was the army in those days. Um, and I was a bit of a runner. So I also did a bit of fencing, sword fighting, which was a new sport for me. Um, so all in all, looking back on it, it was tough. It was tough. And yeah, I mean, there's some controversy, isn't there, about junior service. Interestingly, many years later as a WO2, I sat in a room full of Clark of Works, which is a, a Royal Engineer specialist trade from Staff Sergeant up to, to WO1. Uh, and the, the, I think it was a brigadier who was in charge of the conference said, just out of interest, can you put your hand up if you're an ex-boy? And three quarters of the room put their hand up. Mm. So its function was to produce the future leaders of the army. And boy, did it succeed in that. Um, you know, you can talk the moral imperatives about how, inf- how, how easily influenced you are at 16 versus a, a, an adult recruit. But um, I had a very successful career. I know loads of other people who had a very successful and happy career in the army as a result of boy service. So, um yeah, I'm sure lots of people will talk about talk about that. What age were you when you arrived in Osnabrück? Um, let's have a think. I was probably 18 and three months. Right. When I arrived in the Traz, as it was known in those days. The biggest garrison in the British Army at that time. The Traz. Why, why was it called the Traz? Because Osnabrück got... Um, Osnabrück got shortened to Osnatraz because, you know, Stalag Luft 13 and all that. Um, and uh, so it became known as the Traz. And the Traz was the largest garrison town in the British Army in 1979 when I went there. So there were a lot of soldiers in Osnabrück, a lot of soldiers in Osnabrück. Tell me about Osnabrück and your experiences there. So I was posted to one of the field squadrons, 12 Nova Scotia field squadron, uh, known in the Royal Engineers at that time as the Tartan Mafia. So there was quite a large contingent of our, 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 uh, our Scottish friends in the in the squadron. Um, probably you, you people would argue whether it was the senior squadron in in the regiment. But two five engineer regiment was uh, was in the barracks, um, and we shared that um, with a gunner regiment. I don't remember which gunner regiment it was in those early days, but it very quickly became seven RHA, which is the parachute gunners. So as you can imagine, putting the corps of Royal Engineers and the corps of artillery in the same barracks. Um, often had some spicy moments, particularly in the shared Naffy bar. Um, but it was always fun, and uh, there was quite a lot of mutual respect, I think. Quite early doors, they they noticed that I was uh, a driver, in their view. You know, I had a driving licence, so therefore I must be a driver. Um, and so I was invited to, to drive a Land Rover, and I pointed out that I'd never driven a Land Rover, and I'd never driven on the, on the wrong side of the road. Uh, and also, could they point out i need to point out to them that the land rover had a steering wheel on the wrong side and they said oh no problem you get 20 hours of theater familiarization with an experienced driver so you'll do your german highway code and then you'll go out with a bit of supervised um driving instruction and you'll be absolutely fine 
reality wasn't quite that way because they needed a driver urgently for the radio user course, which is uh, three other soldiers learning how to use radios who are headed off on some sort of crazy treasure hunt into the countryside and send radio messages. Uh, and I was that man. So I got a, I got an experienced driver who also happened to be on this radio users course set loose into Germany with a Land Rover to do my 20 hours familiarization, which I think ended up at about eight or nine. So, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, isn't it? I didn't crash. We had some moments, but I didn't crash. So then I, I essentially became um, a Land Rover driver in the in the motor transport troop of the of the squadron. Very quickly, I was appointed as a Sergeant Major's driver. So I, I drove for a quite fearsome squadron Sergeant Major um, at that point. Um, but I do remember, Ian, and I'll come back to it later on, I do remember I stood in the in the window of my block, which looked out onto the onto the German street and the, the pub, which was called the Winkle. Honestly, it was really called the Winkle, um, which was our almost almost squadron bar. Uh, and I was just watching the traffic go by and I heard this rumbly noise. And these two combat engineer tractors came in had clearly been on exercise or, or something, which was a full track, 17 tons of armoured digger, basically. And I thought to myself, I fancy that. I fancy that. It took a while, but I did. I did get there. So that, yeah. So that's that's how I ended up in in uh, in Osnabrück, fine city. I'm, I'm a great believer in that. First posting is very influential in terms of if Germany suited you, then you you ended up as a Germany soldier, and I think that that laid the laid the foundations of of my always trying to get back to Germany. And was this your first time abroad as well? It was. It was my first time abroad. It was my first time on a plane. I remember Britannia had the air trooping contract and we flew out from Luton um, to, I think, to Hanover Airport, as I remember, um, or possibly to Guttersloe, REF Guttersloe. I can't quite remember which. But, um, but yeah, it was my first flight, my first time abroad. I mean, what were your first impressions of Germany when you arrived? Can you remember sort of the getting off the plane and not really not really but the, i guess the first thing i can remember is we we arrived probably second first or second week of december um and our expectations were managed very very quickly that we weren't going home for christmas because you were only allowed 20 percent of the unit outside of um outside of the operational theaters or outside of germany at any one time and of course new arrivals new boys you know, we'd already missed the boat because preference was given to single soldiers who wanted to go back to the UK to see family, girlfriends, etc. Uh, and the married um, soldiers, the pads, as we called it, because they had a pad to live in, um, they were expected on the whole to stay in Germany. And, you know, if they had a strong reason to go back to the UK, you know, new baby, first Christmas, something like that, they, they, they might well make it onto the list. But most people were accustomed to the fact that they would stay in Germany. And, even the single soldiers basically operated a sort of a split shift arrangement where you would get either Christmas or New Year. And if you were unlucky enough to have the New Year bit, your 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 oppo, your other half, had to come back from the first bit. So if you were unlucky and somebody decided to go AWOL, you would end up spending New Year in, in – I mean, it had happened. I mean, it wasn't regular. Most people did the right thing and come back. So it was quite we – we sort of took it for granted at the time. But looking back on it now, it was quite a restriction, actually. Um, so I knew I was going to be in Germany for that first Christmas. As luck would have it, there was a distant relative um, of the family I'd never met who was a – 
I think it was a WO2 in the RMP, Royal Military Police, and he was based in Hohner, you know, right up into the into the North German Plain, north of Hanover. Um, and the family back in the UK must have done sort of horse trading. I got an invite to Christmas to go to their house. So my first time on a German train, I headed off, I remember it vividly, to Hanover. And I had about half an hour to kill in Hanover um, before I could get the train to Hohner. And so I left the station and found the German Christmas market. And that had a really, really strong influence on me. I remember eating a bratwurst sausage and a, and a roll of bread in this Christmas market with half a half a, with a glass of beer. And the smell is with me to this day. And Christmas, without that Christmas market spell, you know, I, I, I've taken my wife back to, to Germany just specifically to go to Christmas markets. There's something magical about Christmas in Germany. And I guess that sort of started my love affair with with um, with Germany and, and and living there. So that that that's the strongest memory I have of that first three or four months was heading off to Hohner. And of course, I was lucky. I got invited to a family Christmas in in a married quarter, and they they had children. And I was made very welcome. Uh, and I think they eventually they drove me back to Osnabrück. Um, I, I can't remember why they did that, but um, they had pity on me probably. Uh, I mean, what I was impressed was the German train system is as efficient as, you know, as, as the urban legend has it. It literally, the train literally goes as the hand switches onto the, onto the hour point, the train departs. Yeah. Uh, and my first German I learned was um, return ticket to Ruckfahrkart. Um And I, you know, proudly practiced my German. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that was my overwhelming. And, it, you know, it is, it is a clean and tidy place. The roads are very wide. Um, the road users are very law-abiding compared with the UK. There's a, there's a high standard of driving, which is both expected and demanded of drivers, um, even if they are in a military vehicle. Um, fellow road users will soon make it apparent if you're not meeting their high standards of driving. So I liked everything I saw, really. I like everything I experienced. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com. We make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. You're driving for the squadron, Sergeant Major. What? I mean, what is that experience like? Because, I mean, sergeant majors are generally very fearsome characters, aren't they? Yeah, and, and this guy certainly was, certainly was. I mean, all, all units rely on the relationship between the, the, the sergeant major and the, and the OC, the unit, or indeed the RSM and the colonel of the regiment. Um, all successful units have a strong relationship between the senior of the, of the non-commissioned um, ranks and, and the commissioned part of the squadron. And we were very fortunate to have a fantastic OC um, and a very, I, I, at this stage, a very scary Sergeant Major. You know, I, he, I wouldn't talk to him. And if he talked to me, it would generally be bad news. You know, I'd done something wrong or I was out of place in some way. So to discover that I was going to be his driver on Exercise Crusader 80, which at that point was destined to be the largest exercise um, conducted in in uh, British forces Germany or in fact BAOR uh, in fact wider than that you know the whole of United States Europe re- was involved in that exercise it was quite a daunting thought you know I had some meetings with him about what he wanted and um, 
uh, we needed to have a gas stove in the back of the Land Rover so that we could do some cooking um, and have a cup of coffee, etc. Uh, and he said we had a thing called a battle box, which had all sorts of useful stuff in it, in- including some emergency rations. Uh, and he said to me, don't go filling the battle box up with chocolate because stickies make you weak. OK, sir. So I ignored him and took some chocolate along. But um, so, yeah, driving for him was was interesting. And uh, I remember him saying to me, look, I'm, I'm going to be able to sh- show you, direct you to a location um, using the map. But once I've shown you how to get to get to that location once, you're going to need to remember how to get to it because Sapper Davis, I'm going to be too busy on the radio. You know, he said, you know, this is a big exercise. The squad, there's going to be a lot asked of the squadron. The last thing I need is to be babysitting you. So, you know, get used to the idea. You need to be thinking ahead. You need to be thinking what I'm going to need. He said, you know, I need you to. He said, you know, you're an ex-boy. You know how all this works. So, you know, it was very clear that we were ex-apprentices and there was quite a lot expected of us, you know. So, so you know, I knew what I was letting. I, I guess I didn't really know what I let, let myself in for, to be honest, until we actually deployed on um, on Crusader 18. I, I can't remember now whether we were crashed out. So there was a thing, some other of your contributors have spoken about act, exercise Active Edge, which was um, which was a preparatory exercise to basically the transition to war as we'd know it now. We used to call it a crash out because the, the, the camp fire alarm would go at, in the middle of the night. Sometimes we'd get pre-warning. There was always rumour. The rumour mill was always rife, you know, and it was generally wrong, but sometimes it was right. Um, and we would get crashed out uh, and the idea was to get the vehicles loaded with their complete equipment schedule so all the tools and weapons etc and then deploy uh, to the local exercise area to a survival area and the, as the name suggests the idea was to avoid the town centers which might be struck by the russians either conventionally or or um or worse still nuclear particularly a big town like osnabrück was probably a prime target basically deploy survive in the field and then um rapidly deployed to our war location so and i can't remember to be honest i thought back but i can't remember actually what got us into the field on crusader 80 but what i do remember is we went rapidly as a squadron to uh, uh, i think it was a a, a a disused sugar beet factory on the north german plain so it's we used to call it the pin table because if you looked at it on a map it was flat and green with lots of little villages that looked like the pockets on a pool or a snooker table. And the, the, the task of the squadron, and in fact, the task of the whole regiment, and I suspect the task of a couple of engineer regiments uh, in Crusader 80 phase one was to lay mines. So to lay bar mines, which is a tank killer. You know, a tank does not run over a bar mine and survive. There are some pretty scary um, army uh, training videos of of tank hulks being rolled over a bar mine and you know it would literally cut them in half so it was uh, it was a pretty fearsome mine and we laid uh, cardboard versions of what was a plastic mine we laid cardboard versions which were filled full of sand which i think it, it, the idea was they were biodegradable um and uh the squadron our squadron lay mines for 72 hours i remember it non-stop so without breaks uh, and we actually laid cardboard mines, so they were delivered to the factory by the Royal Corps Transport, um, uh, delivering pallets and pallets of these cardboard mines, and they were outloaded to the field troops. Um, and they used to use a, a, a armoured fighting vehicle, the, the Venerable 432, um, hooked up to a bar mine layer, which not a very sophisticated piece of equipment, but as a result, very reliable, sturdy, iron, basically an iron chute on 
two wheels with large cages so it didn't sink into the ground, a plough, which would open up a furrow, um, drop the cardboard mine, or there's the bar mine, down the conveyor belt into the prepared hole, and then two large blades and a chain would cover the hole, cover the fill the dirt back in and cover the, the hole up. And we laid a lot, they laid a lot of mines, the boys laid a lot of mines indeed. Um, they also had some uh, anti-personnel mines in a system called Ranger, which sat on the top of the uh, machine, which was essentially a, one of the very first scatterable mine systems. That would, so we'd basically lay bar mines and then scatter the field with, with Ranger mines as well, just to discourage the infantry, shall we say. Um, and were they, the, the Ranger mines, were they on the surface then? They were, they were surface laid, right. yeah. Um, but there was crop in these fields. Um, I mean, clearly the... Clearly, there'd been some negotiation with the German farmers um, when they set the area of the exercise, and they were generally encouraged to do an early crop and harvest. Then we would do the exercise. They would get paid for a certain amount of um, certain amount of damage, I suppose. I can't remember how that works. And then they'd have the opportunity, perhaps, for a late crop. Um, but looking back on it, amazingly cooperative bunch of people. I mean, the threat was quite real if you were a German living on the North German plain, because, you know, the inner German border wasn't that far away. But nevertheless, I, you know, I, I look back and think how how cooperative a farmer in the UK would have been. You know, they didn't have the level of threat necessarily, but, you know, there, there was some financial benefits, but they weren't huge. You know, they, if they used, if you used their barns overnight, they would get paid barn money. Um, and, you know, the occasional bottle of whiskey would pass hands, I'm sure. Um, but they were not only cooperative but um you know quite friendly actually when you consider how much we were disrupting their lives you know covering all the roads with mud mulching all of the curbstones um it was quite amazing really so i'd certainly never seen anything on the scale of this and i never saw the scale of that again the idea of those minefields was essentially as a blocking screen to push soviet armor south into the into the valleys which would which were the killing zones which is where the Royal Armoured Corps, um, the Royal Artillery and the Army Air Corps will be set up to do this big tank kill on mass tank kill. So rather than being able to speed across the North German plain into the Netherlands, these big blocker minefields, and they were big, um, were designed to push them south into the, into the killing zone. So that, that was the premise, really, of the first part of the exercise. So you can imagine 72 hours of driving from field location to field location where the Sergeant Major was... I guess a combination of arm around the shoulder and a fist, you know, if they weren't moving fast enough or they weren't getting it right or, you know, congratulating those that were. And you could see where crews had fallen asleep, where the line of the, the line of the mines would like swing left <laughs> into the, you know, into a riverbank or something where the machine and, and sometimes 432s were off the road or off the field, um, which wasn't surprising because, you know, drivers in particular were having a tough time. Um, and, and, you know, as were the troops, it, it wasn't easy work. There was a lot of manual handling going on. There was a lot of work to, they always had a troop walking behind the machines just to do some more camouflaging to fix any, any um, plow marks or whatever to try and try and tidy up as much as possible. So it was a tough 72 hours. And um, I remember the Sergeant Major saying to me, I'm going to the CV. I'm going to be about an hour. You can get some sleep. And I got in my sleeping bag. He said, you need to sleep next to the, next to the vehicle door so i can come and kick you and get us going again i got in my sleeping bag and slept next door it's only when he come back and woke me up i realized i'd been sleeping in a large puddle in my sleeping bag um but i was tired enough not to uh 
not to um, not to worry too much. The one thing I do remember, which taught me a lot about the sergeant major, uh, this one in particular, was he he came out on another occasion and he said um, one of the dispatch riders, good friend of mine, actually a roommate of mine, one of the dispatch riders is missing. We need to go and look for him, um, which was obviously quite worrying. It was dark. It wasn't a particularly nice night as well. It was sleet. No, it wasn't sleeting, but it was certainly raining, I would say. Um, it was too early in the year for sleep. And we headed off down the known route. I guess we were about out for about an hour. And um, the sergeant major said, there he is. Turn around at the next junction. Because we were on this, either, either an autobahn or a dual carriageway. I can't remember which. And we turned around and we came back and parked underneath the bridge, underneath an autobahn bridge or a road bridge in the dry was this dispatch rider bike which in those days was a very old looking single seater bsa motorcycle and asleep on this motorcycle was this six foot five uh, dispatch rider um head on the saddle boots over the handlebars uh, and it was my mate um and the sergeant major leapt out of the vehicle and i thought oh, he's going to get the good news now um came back a few minutes later and he said get the kettle on and got my 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 roommate into the back of the vehicle and I remember the Sergeant Major rubbing, rubbing his hands through his gloves. So he had he had his hands in his and was rubbing his hands and we made him some tea. Um, and that's when I saw the humanity of the man. You know, it's not just about discipline. It's about looking after the troops. Um, and, you know, my roommate had done the right thing, basically. He, uh, he got so tired he couldn't ride anymore. So he'd stopped somewhere dry. Uh, he didn't have a radio because we were on radio silence and, and he was a dispatch rider. Um, so he got he got a little bit admonished for um, not trying to let us know where he was, but in fact the sergeant major was looking after him, and I, I I never forgot that, and I never forgot that when I when I climbed started climbing the rank structure is it's it's what's really important is looking after the boys, and that's really what he was about. So um, mm. so yeah that that was that was driving uh, that was driving him on on Crusader eighty, which was uh, yeah a formative affair. Brilliant. I'm I'm still intrigued how your your friend could sleep on top of a motorbike without falling off how, yeah. how do you do that i don't know because he wasn't in a sleeping bag i just just were dog tired you know same as me yeah. sleeping in the puddle literally dog tired um because they radio radio silence was 72 hours those dispatch riders were busy they were really busy you know and and every all of the land rovers were busy with with passing messages and stuff so but yes it was a feat it was a feat i don't think he could repeat it he certainly couldn't repeat it in daylight because we made him try but um i wish i'd taken a picture of it but i didn't <laughs> well it would have been a bit difficult in the dark <laughs> that's uh, true uh what's next well i just one thing that the this particular sergeant major's mantra um would always we we knew that nine guard shock army was just across the border and they were probably likely to be the soviet um force that part of the the group of soviet forces germany so the intelligence was quite strong and we knew that nine guard, guard shock army which is a motor motor rifle division plus tanks uh, they would be our enemy and his mantra the sergeant majors was when nine guard shock army arrive and then then insert something horrible like you know they're going to nail you to a barn door or they're going to do something horrible and he they used to use that a lot um so we never forgot that it was nine guard nine guard shock army um facing us did you get much intel as to how effective the the soviet army was or did they i mean because they they probably they wanted you to think that you could beat them but you didn't they didn't want you to think that it was going to be easy. So how, how did they 
they manage that fine balance between those two? Well, to be fair, to be fair, I think that the concept of beating them came a bit later when the change of doctrine happened about, you know, the counterattack phase. We we were never we were never under any illusions that we were in a delaying situation. You know, we were under the delusions that at some point we would all we would all head west to the port. Um, but I, I think in, you know, we never talked about it, but I think we all knew that if we were lucky enough to survive the survival phase, to be honest, because I'm sure, you know, their intelligence was as good as ours. They knew where we were all going to go, um, that, um, you know, we, we were going to fight this blocking battle, um, which was phase one. And then we would move on to engineering tasks, which I'll, I'll come to in a second. Um, by which time the attrition rate was going to be very high. So, you know, there was a general concept that our tanks were better than theirs across the piece, but there were so many of them. It was the, you know, it was the World War II Sherman tank analogy, which is if you've got enough tanks, you will roll through. I think even in those days, there was some doubts about how committed the, 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 the Soviet bloc satellite states would be to this attack. But equally, we, we were very aware that the, the, the Polish and the Czechoslovakian army in particular were very high grade um, troops with, you know, with with Soviet weaponry. So I think we were quite realistic. You know, doctrine changed later to the concept of the counterstrike, but not in 1979 and 80. It Mm. was very much, you know, all exercises transitioned to nuclear at this point. You know, that's that's how exercises were brought to an end. You know, the use of tactical nuclear weapons and then the, the unspoken the unspoken understanding is that would escalate to, you know, mutually assured destruction. And, you know, I just, we just didn't talk about it, you know, and we just didn't Mm -hmm. talk about it. We just, we just enjoyed it as much as we could endured what we had to. Um, So, I mean, I think intelligence was in terms of what we were going to face was very good, you know, and, and, and the sort of vehicles that we might be, um, might be encountering. But um, yeah, in terms of our chances, I think we were all quite realistic. And did you think it was going to happen at some point? I didn't. No, I'll be honest with you. But this this first tour, I was um, I was quite young, you know, young and invincible. You know, I was the nation's deterrent and all that. So I, I you know, I never, I never really, I never really thought it was for real. You know, I mean, it did cross your mind if you were you got a real no notice crash out in the middle of the night. Um, and and you knew it was no notice because some people were still downtown at the bar and the disco, and you would be scrabbling around for drivers that were sober that could drive the vehicles out. Um, and there was one occasion I remember where we towed out all of vehicle all the vehicles off the road, so all the broken down equipment, as much as possible of it, we towed out, which was which was a one off. And I must admit, it crossed my mind, and I think we. It wasn't something we talked about, but, you know, there was a recognition that this one was a bit different. can't remember when that was, but it was significant because, you know, in an, in an engineer regiment in those days, there was quite a lot of equipment off the road. So it was a logistical effort in itself to get plant on trailers and behind something, a prime mover that was actually working, you know, towing out armoured vehicles that aren't roadworthy uh, out to the exercise area. So that felt quite significant. But to answer your question, no, I never thought, oh, my goodness, this is it. Um, I think if we'd been issued with live rounds, I might have changed my mind, but that never happened. We, ne- we never deployed in my time with live rounds because, you know, <laughs> it's just it just wasn't necessary. 
Yeah. And with with these crash outs, so even with those really short notice ones, you knew it was... Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. An exercise, or yeah. or did you not? Yeah, yeah you did. Right yeah. right from the off, you, yeah. you knew it wasn't. With, with the possible exception of the one where we towed the kit out, I think they were, they were, they were deliberately, or they'd been instructed to be cagey about what was going on. Um, maybe to get a little bit more focus because, you know, they, they were, there was a bit of lip service going on to, the, to that exercise after a while, as you can imagine. No, that's really, it's really interesting just hearing your, your, your views there of, of, of that time because there is this transition in doctrine in the 80s where with portable anti-tank weapons become far more plentiful and effective. Yeah. And the, um, as, as we've seen in the present day, um, you know, they can be a great force equaliser. Crusader 80. Crusader 80, yes. Yeah, so we, we switched them from, from the mine laying. I think we had a pause, you know, a, a, a rest and recuperation maintenance day or whatever it was to pause. And then we moved on to engineering tasks, which was largely bridge demolitions. So reserve demolitions on the, particularly up in that part of Germany, the Midland Canal, there's a big canal that runs through that that section of Germany, which is a good natural barrier it's got some very large, what we call bowstring bridges because of their shape. Um, a lot of those were prepared for demolition using simulated demolitions, but people climbing up them and putting on um, charges uh, ready to blow them. Um, a lot of those bridges had pre-prepared demolitions, so they had shafts sunk into the road. Um, they were called, I think they were called Mounsel, as I remember it, um, and they were... They were ready to accept some precast um, charges, TNT or plastic explosive charges that were were in large cheeses, if you like. That's exactly what they look like. Um, and so part of the job will be to remove these uh, what look like manhole covers and drop in these very large charges, mainly in the bank seat. So, you know, the, the piece of the bridge that uh, that's on the, each bank, um, that the bridge itself is sprung off, there's a big mass of earth and concrete very large charges to blow the bank seat because that's the, probably the best way of, of, of denying a bridge is to, is to destroy that part of the, of the, of the bridge. Um, and then just to make sure of it, they put charges on the, on the bridges as well. So that was quite a lot of the work. Equally on the flip side of that was, was, um, was route preparation. So some bridges that weren't perhaps up to the classification that we might need to retreat um, tanks to a new fighting position, we would, Overbridge, so lay a bridge over the top of the bridge to raise its bridge classification, so that you could use that route as a primary um, primary route. So a bit of that went on. Other type of engineering tasks um, 
went on in the background. So, you know, uh, preparing uh, fortifications, trenches, etc. Um, and and that I, I can't remember how long that took, but that was a little bit more relaxed in terms of it wasn't flat out effort. You know, there were there was some downtime um, uh, at night for people to get some sleep, um, particularly in the field troops because they were run ragged by this point. Um, and, and then what I remember then is that we then transitioned to damage control. So when everybody went back in at Endex, I can't remember how many weeks it was, but it was a fair time. The poor old sappers, of course, as usual, along with the Pioneer Corps, um, get to stay out and repair all the damage, uh, which, as you can imagine, on an exercise of that scale was significant, significant. Mud on roads in particular, destroyed fences, tanks through the sides of buildings, you know, curbstones. We went through a lot of curbstones in that part of Germany. Um, so that that I think that took another couple of weeks. Um, but we did have a bit more downtime. In fact, it was the one and only time in my army career that I actually made use of a field bath unit. I didn't even know such a thing existed, but what looked like mash turned up and set themselves up and boiled some water. And then you got a shower and actually got some new, some new, newish uniform. You, you know, you handed your uniform in um, and got another set of combats. Uh, so that was quite entertaining. I remember that very well. Um, and then, so there was, a, so Damcom was a little bit more relaxed. I remember we had some barbecues in the field. We weren't tactical anymore. I even think the weapons may well have got um, handed in and back backtracked to, to, to Osnabrück and put back in the armory before anybody lost one. Um, but I do remember one Sunday morning um, in a field location and it had been raining really, really heavily and the track into the field location had become completely and utterly impassable to anything on tracks. And even then, some of the APCs were struggling. So we got quite a flat bottom on them. And we had a couple of these combat engineer tractors I mentioned earlier on. At least one of them was with us. And that was the only vehicle that could basically get out to the road. So anything that wanted to leave had to be towed out by a combat engineer tractor, which is a self-fulfilling prophecy because it's a full-tracked vehicle, 17 ton, churns the track up even more. So it was a quagmire. It wasn't that far. You could almost, you could see the main road. So we're all laying in our sleeping bags on early on this Sunday morning. I could hear the cooks making breakfast. Uh, the number two cooker had, had to be pumped up, had petrol. Can you believe how much lead we must have consumed um, to cook the sausages? So they, they'd cracked on. So it, it was probably quite early. And you could hear an engine in the distance. And I thought for it was just some passing traffic. But this engine got steadily louder and louder. And it was a really interesting engine noise. It sounded a bit like a Mini, you know, the old Mini. Um, so I couldn't resist. I got out of my sleeping bag and out of the tent that we were, we were, we were sleeping in. Um, and sure enough, this little black military uh, number plated mini turns up in the field location, having driven down this frankly impassable track and out climbs the padre, the regimental padre with his pedal organ, um, has a chat with the sergeant major and the OC and calls us all round for an, Im, you know, an impromptu Sunday service. And so, you know, we had all been out in the field for ages. Everybody's up for a bit of a sing song. And the Padre was very highly thought of. Really, really great guy. He always had sweets with him for a start. Um, so we had this, we had, a, we had a short Sunday service. He joined us for breakfast, which was ready by then. And it was all very pally. And the Sergeant Major said to him, he said, I've got to ask you, sir. I've got to ask you, Padre. How on earth did you get down that track? Um, so the Padre suggested there was some divine intervention going on. And the Sergeant Major said, well, I'd like to see you drive back down it. 
And he said, oh, not, not, not at all, Sergeant Major. He said, he said well, Sergeant Major, said, I'll have a vehicle stood by to pull you out when you get bogged in. So we watched him drive away. And this Mini was all sorts of sideways as it went down this track. But eventually, the Padre made it to the main road and drove away. And the Sergeant Major said, right, duty driver, get down to Echelon and get some milk and some bread. That was the, like, the thing we needed the most. The Land Rover got about 10 metres bogged into its axles. So to this day, I mean, I'm not I'm not a believer, but um, there was something about the Padre. So that that was my last memory, really, of Crusader 80. And then we came we came back in after that. Yeah. Maybe he couldn't walk on water, but he could certainly walk on mud. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that that was Crusader 80. I, I then I then dabbled in support troop um, support troop needed. Uh, they had mainly the plant equipment. Now, I wasn't a plant. Uh, operator but I was a fitter so um, I spent some time working on plant we used to assist the Remy so the Remy had uh, the Remy workshop the LAD light aid detachment had some sappers embedded to work on the the plant equipment because that was our speciality not theirs uh, which was quite interesting you know working with another core they're, they're, they're very good they're very very um, very professional and they're very good at being embedded in another unit so I worked with them for a while, which was fascinating. Um, and then I was invited to do a light mobile digger course. So we had this marvelous machine. Uh, I remember it was on a Thornycroft Nubian chassis, and it had essentially a civilian trenching attachment on the back. The machine was uh, an engine with this trencher, and this trencher had a series of chains, vertical chains, that would dig the trench, and then a horizontal conveyor belt, which would throw the spoil either next to the trench or away if you wanted to get rid of it completely. And it would dig a perfect two-man battle trench. That was what it was best at. It could dig other holes, but it came a bit of, bit of a choreography of digging one bit and then moving and digging another bit. And invariably, you'd end up falling in the hole and a digger would have to come and pull you out. Um, but it was the noisiest machine in NATO, easily. It was literally the noise. So it wasn't the most popular machine to have around Popular with the infantry if it would dig you the holes. They wanted to get rid of you as quickly as possible. But the infantry soon learned that it would dig a certain amount of holes and then it would invariably break down. Uh, so they'd end up with this tactical field location with this whacking great truck parked in the middle of it with his head stuck in the ground. So, um, But driving it on the road was a really unique experience because somebody decided to put the gearbox in backwards. So the pattern of the gearbox was completely the other way around. If you imagine in your car, first is first is up and left. In the light mobile digger, it was down and right, which um, well, took a bit of getting used to, I'll be honest with you. Took, took a, a bit, bit of getting, of getting used, to. used to. I'm not sure I'd ever get my head around that. There, there are worse machines out there, I can assure you. So, um, But that was the good thing about doing that course is it then let me into being a member of support troop. And the other thing that support troop had was the combat engineer tractor, which was called the frog because from the front driving on the road, it had a couple of headlights that stuck up in boxes, a bit of an afterthought, I think by Vickers. Um, and it did look like a bit of a frog from the front. And at the other end, it had a, a proper digger blade, not just a dozer blade, but a proper digger, that you, digger blade that you could do crowd and dump and actually dig out dirt. Um, and it had two, two crew, and you could drive it in either direction, a little switch, you could flick it over and you could drive it on the road headlights first, or you could dig with it, excavate it first. And I loved it. I loved the look of it. It was big. It was chunky. I thought it was quite sexy. It had a quite, it, it was had a bit of notoriety in the core, even at this stage. And they, they soldiered on for many years. 
as being notoriously unreliable. And I think some of that is true. I spent a lot of my time upside down in the engine or the gearbox of it. Um, but when it was working, it was a fine machine and driving it on the road was a marvellous experience. So I, I remember I went to Canada on Med Medicine Man, which was the Battus exercise in Suffield. Um, even though I wasn't trained, I went with a trained uh, driver operator um, as his crewman um, and had a fantastic time on the prairie driving around in this combat engineer tractor. It did break, inevitably. It did break at some point, pretty seriously, actually, terminally broken. Um, but as a result of that, I, when we came back to Germany, I was sent back on the proper um, combat engineer truck course with another fitter from for, who'd been to Chepstow with me. And we went back to Bovington which for me was fantastic. So back to the place where it all started, to the RAC centre, to the Royal Engineers wing um, to do my combat engineer tractors course. I remember being really shocked that they wore coveralls and a shirt and tie, which I'd never come across before. You know, overalls were a thing to be worn when you were, when you were fixing something. But no, the dress of the day was coveralls, belt, shirt and tie. Um, but I had a great time, learned to operate this machine and then, came back to Germany and I did an exercise called uh, Red Claymore, um, which was a, a, an exercise where it rained from the moment we left barracks to, to go to the rail flats until the exercise was cancelled. The only one I've ever went on that was cancelled and it was because we were doing so much damage because it was so wet that they, in the end, they said, oh, enough's enough. We, you know, we can't afford the dam con. And so we came in early, which was, I remember being quite a thing. We, we, it was quite marvellous, but um so we created quite a lot of carnage on that exercise. We dug a lot of holes. We, we used to dig tank slots um, for, you know, for the de for the defensive positions, for these kill zone positions um, for for the tanks. Um, and yeah, we dug a lot of holes. So that, that was that was great fun. The holes for the tanks. So these are like hull down positions. So only they the are. turret is showing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So and there was two types, really. We would we would either dig them and lay the spoil, so the dirt that come out the hole, lay the spoil in a ring around the front edge, and they would use the chieftain in those days, the chieftain barrel, to land flatten out that dirt so they'd got as much cover as they could. Or if we were being really, we or they, uh, lancers, cavalry in particular, would be quite keen on you actually digging the slot and taking the dirt away and dumping it at the rear of the field. Try to make these on the reverse slope so that the you know, the tank turret and gun was going to point over the top of the hill into the kill zone. Um, but of course, the, the, I guess the advantage of that for them was that they were far more camouflaged. The disadvantage for us, you had to dig a bit deeper because you didn't have the dirt to lay around the around the ring. Um, but it's quite impressive when you see, you know, a squadron of, of chieftains dug in along a hillside. And it was a very efficient machine. When it was working, it could dig very, very well. Um, I mean, some most um, Royal Armoured Corps cavalry tank squadrons had a one dozer tank per squadron but they could only do a push through hole which wasn't quite so elegant you know it would work um but uh, ours were a much more prepared uh, defensive position if you like so that was that was me that was my um i guess that was that's the sort of highlights of my um of my time i i flitted between support troop and uh, the motor transport troop i actually went back and was the oc's driver um for i guess for the rest of my time my last sort of s seven or eight months in osnabrück i was the um i was the oc's driver um which meant late nights because you know he would generally work quite late and he'd have to take him drop him off at his married quarter 
Um, but he was a fantastic guy and he looked after me very, very well. And you had lots of perks being the OC's driver because, you know, you were basically free of all other duties because you had to be on call. Um, worked very hard on exercise with him, mainly waking him up because he was, he was so tired. As soon as he got in the Land Rover, he'd fall asleep. So I'd, I'd end up on the radio and driving. Um, but uh, <laughs> it gave me a real insight into leadership and the difference between leadership and management, which, um, you know, I, I by this time was a Lance Corporal. So I'd sort of worked out that if you didn't want to do lots of manual labor, the best thing was to was to get a stripe. And so I um, I got promoted from the regimental um, carder, which was basically a, a, a promotion course. Um, and they, they put me in charge of four Land Rovers, mine included. So three other Land Rovers and their drivers. And that was my first experience of management and that that first stripe is always the most difficult because of course you're you're then in charge of people that you live with and you go down the pub with um so you learn you learn quite a lot about yourself and about others in that in that first posting it was around this time that they used to have this um we used to have daily part one orders for the squadron and for the regiment which would be published towards the end of the afternoon and it was everyone's duty to read those before the following day because you might be on guard or you might be on some sort of duty or something might be happening that it was your your responsibility to know about so before first parade um the following morning you had to read these part one and part one orders as they were called uh, and often next to them on the notice board was a thing called AGIs, the Adjutant General's Administrative Instructions. And it was things like volunteers are sought for um, special duties. You know, volunteers are sought for testing at Porton Down, which was, you know, like testing MBC equipment and stuff like that. Um, but one caught my eye, which was volunteers are sought for aircrew. So I'd always been quite keen on helicopters and stuff. And so I looked into this, I asked the chief clerk and he gave me the whole instruction and the army air corps was um regularly looking for air crew from the from the rest of the army uh so i discussed it with the boss because obviously i drove him every day and he said well you'll be posted soon um if you're going to do it go for it i'll i'll happily sign it for you because he knew i would be posted i was coming up to my three-year point so i um i i i filled in my application and you know quite a short space of time actually i heard back that um I'd been, uh, I'd been accepted for an interview. And don't forget, don't miss our next episode where Paul joins the Army Air Corps and becomes an air crewman observer on Gazelle helicopters along the inner German border. We have further information such as videos and photos in the episode notes. Just look for the link in the podcast information. Now, this show wouldn't exist without our generous Patreons, so I want to thank one and all of them for their support. You can very easily become a Patreon by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.
Mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.